Hey, Cecily. What's up, Tim? We watched the Netflix show Daybreak for the podcast, which is a mix of the teenage adventure aspects of Ferris Bueller's Day Off and the depressing nuclear war story of The Day After. I guess we can finally say that we learned what happened the day after Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Tim, I think you're being super critical. Welcome to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear nonproliferation for a living, and I'm thrilled today to be joined on the podcast over Zoom with Cecily Thompson-Williams, Executive Director of Beyond the Bomb, which is a grassroots organization that encourages people at the local, state, and national levels to envision a world where we have moved beyond needing or wanting nuclear weapons, and most importantly, then taking the steps to bring that world into a reality. Welcome to the podcast, and is that an accurate description of what you do on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, that's right on. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Terrific. Well, before we get into the purpose of our podcast to talk about the Netflix show Daybreak, uh, what are some of the policy priorities of Beyond the Bomb for people who uh, may not have been familiar with your organization yet? Sure. Uh, well, so our long-term goal is to build a world without nukes. Uh, and we want that world to also have addressed the destructive legacy of nuclear weapons. So our primary area of policy focus to get there is called No First Use. So that's the policy that says that we shouldn't start a nuclear war. It's pretty, it's pretty straightforward. We we don't think that we should be striking first with nukes or any anyone should be striking first with nukes. No one does it first. No one does it. So that's where we focus most of our energy here on domestic policy. But we also work on a variety of other nuclear policies and related issues. So we work on legislation, for example, to add protections for communities that have been impacted by the U.S.'s nuclear legacy. We're working on new start extension. So making sure that we still have at least one treaty guardrail in place to prevent mm-hmm. a new arms race. And we work in partnership with a lot of different organizations organizations both in the nuke space and outside to raise the profile of the issue. That's terrific. Yeah, that sounds a lot of uh, the different kinds of strategies that you're involved. I know you, you do a lot of, uh, it's all 2020 was a large uh, part of your goals is for a lot more bringing this to Congress, a lot of grassroots efforts, a lot of letter writing, a lot of showing up to campaigns and making sure that these things are asked uh, to the candidates because it doesn't pop up all that much uh, in the presidential primary debates. I think one question got asked early on about nukes and that was pretty much it. Yeah, we've had a couple questions in the debates. One that was actually a relatively decent question but you're right it's not in the public eye as much as it needs to be so we do uh, our main focus is field organizing partnerships working with other organizations uh, and then digital outreach right we want to get the message out there we want to get people outraged and Mm -hmm. active and then we want to connect them both with our actions and with other movements that are doing related uh, work to build a comprehensive, sane nuclear policy system here in the U.S. Okay, well, right at the very top of this, how has uh, pop culture and the way that nukes are portrayed in movies and TV, how has that helped or hurt your efforts at trying to make sure people understand this is a problem and maybe they should consider doing something about it on their own? Yeah. Well, so I mean, the first thing I'll say is I think that pop culture is really critical to any kind of campaigning. So I'm super excited, one, that this show that you're doing exists, two, that we do see nukes in pop culture every so often. I think it's really a critical piece of how we get people engaged and excited is if they see it in the places where they're going to, you know, spend their off time. That being said, <laughs> I think, you know, the the way that nukes are portrayed can be 
challenging. So we've seen in some shows or games, they kind of downplay or, or make too light of the destructive power of nukes. And that has the potential to really hurt the cause because it makes the public think that, you know, this isn't really a true existential crisis anymore, that this is sort of a bygone issue and, and we don't need to be worried about it today. You selected uh, this show Daybreak for us to cover today. So I want to ask you later on kind of how you came across this show and and why did you want to recommend it? But it really did end up being a good example of this because it is nukes in that uh, show kind of a plot point at some points and other points. It's like, nah, it's just something that led into it. And before we get into it here, for anyone who's not familiar with this, this is a 10 episode arc on Netflix. They did one season and then it got canceled. So it was released in 2019. It's a story of where nuclear war breaks out in Glendale, California, and somehow that zombifies the he- the adults and leaves the high school students living out of Mad Max uh, situation. Uh, how did you come across this show and, and end up recommending it? I'm, I'm a Netflix person. I think I might have saw the trailer, but I, I don't think I picked up that it was nuclear. I think I just saw, oh, zombies and, and teenagers. I've seen some of those. Uh, what's on next? I think uh, I have a very unique algorithm at play on the Netflix in my in my house. <laughs> uh, I have a 16-year-old daughter, um, so I get I get that kind of influence. I have a 10-year-old daughter who's really into like, science-y kind of um, investigative type shows for kids. And then I, of course, as you know a nuclear advocate spend a lot of time watching post-apocalyptic shows and so the recommendations i get are kind of wacky and daybreak was like front and center one time um oh and also of course ferris bueller is like one of my favorites and so i think it you know netflix actually was pretty right on in recommending this for me fits pretty nicely with with a lot of you know my work and my and my home Well, that's terrific. After watching all 10 of these, I'm starting to get uh, some of these other adjacent uh, teenage movies kind of brought into my yeah. algorithm. So we'll we'll see how that goes. <laughs> but yeah, so this was uh, based on a 2013 comic uh, by Brian Ralph, and it was created by people like uh, Brad Payton, who mostly has been known for making movies with The Rock, uh, like Rampage and San Andreas, and as well as someone, uh, Aaron Eli Coletti, uh, who wrote the TV show Heroes, which uh, was was a good show uh, back in those days. And as you mentioned, Ferris Bueller, uh, Matthew Broderick's in this. He plays the principal. Uh, and then we'll, we'll spoil a little bit later, another main big character near the end of the show. Uh, and then a host of other young actors, because I am not a teenager and I don't know who any of these people are. So it definitely made me feel old. Uh, but it was fun to see some new people because some of them were pretty good in the show. Uh, the reception of the show, as we mentioned, it was canceled after one season, but it got a 70% in Rotten Tomatoes, which is, you know, not too bad for, for a Netflix show like this. Before we get into the plot of it and then start talking about some of the interesting nuclear questions and themes that are in the show uh what was your kind of overall impression of the of the show it's 10 episodes so that's in in these well maybe before quarantine that was a that was a huge commitment of time you know i think uh my overall impression was it it was just shy of the mark for almost all of its potential audiences so my 16 year old did not like it okay (laughs) and i feel like she's like the target audience um i as a post-apocalyptic tv show junkie yeah, it was okay. It wasn't, it wasn't great. So, so like that, they sort of missed the mark there. Um, and I think if you're like a fan of comedies and particularly like coming of age comedies, um, it probably didn't hit the mark for you either. So I feel like it was just shy of, so 70% seems right to me, but that you would sort of be like, it's okay. Yeah. If you get a 70% on a test, you're not going to get kicked out of school, but you're probably not going to take an AP class or something. This is a good start, I think, to this. So let's get into the the, the conversation of the TV show itself. Uh, as usual, spoiler warning, uh, if you haven't seen this 10-episode uh, epi- series yet, you can go ahead and do that on Netflix now, uh, or you can just listen to us and we'll provide a pretty good overview of this. 
Hey, bros, what does the golf team do to those who crash our party? Take another step and you're dead. Well, loser! <laughs> Is this what you were trying to do? I was trying to cut it clean off. It was gonna be rad. That's me, Josh, and I've got a killer origin story. It's got fights, <laughs> drama. Josh, this is Sam. And love. You're challenging, Josh Wheeler, and I do like a challenge. But then, this happened. What's life like during the apocalypse? It's awesome. There's no rules left because adults turn into what we call ghoulies. The world is backwards. I just fit in way better now. Sure, there are still jocks, nerds, and cheerleaders. But I have everything I ever wanted. But it's not about having cool shit. It's about being cool as shit. Sam is out there. And I'm not giving up until I find her. You can't just leave us. I agree with the petulant dwarf. You acquire our assistance. We're making something important here. Our own tribe. A family by choice. So what's life like in the apocalypse? It's never what you'd expect. So the show jumps around a lot. Uh, this one of the things I liked about the show a lot. It jumps around on who it's going to focus on in terms of either our heroes and our villains. In each episode, it really keeps you guessing about what you're going to see in the next episode. I really like that particular formula. It started out as like a very much a fourth wall breaking Ferris Bueller type discussion of this guy, Josh, who's the main character, his life before and after World War Three. And then other episodes are like, sometimes they integrate cartoons. Sometimes they integrate this, this like traditional Japanese martial arts movie vibe. I think one of them is even narrated by Riza from Wu-Tang Clan. So that was very entertaining. So I enjoyed that part of it as well did you enjoy that piece of the the way they, they broke that out yeah absolutely i mean i think one of the things that was really interesting about it was that as you said you didn't know what you were going to get on any given episode and and it was specific to the nature of that specific episode story or, mm -hmm. or those characters how it was told so they've positioned josh as this sort of ferris bueller type character and so that's that's sort of what surrounds him but then other characters really integrate better with other types and styles and so pulling those in felt really appropriate yeah josh is a so he is a, a canadian who moves to glendale he's uh in the course of the show he's once the bombs drop he's looking for his girlfriend Sam Dean. He is one who announces pretty early in the show. He actually doesn't mind all that much the the end of the world because uh, it allows him to kind of really lean into his his lone survivor type personality. He walks around with a samurai sword and a skateboard uh, and just living life on the, uh, the the Mad Max Fury Road. Uh, Sam is this popular uh, student. I think uh, maybe a British exchange student or someone who was his, his family moved there. Uh, she survived the bombs, but she's missing at the beginning of the show. There's this character Angelica. She's a, a brash tenure old who's really smart but kind of a little bit crazy in terms of how she applies those smarts so, so hopefully that's not how your 10 year old is is like uh but maybe a little bit okay uh then we get two other characters that i went worth mentioning at this point the kids uh you got wesley fist a great name for a guy who takes on like a ronin samurai type uh persona uh he's trying to move on from his past as uh being a, a jock uh jock bully in in the former life uh before the bombs and then we got another guy turbo bro jock polowski uh who is kind of like the guy in mad max road warrior 
earlier, the second one, the guy with the the, the hockey mask, uh, but he's a former jock who now rules with an iron fist uh, over a group of athletes who are now taking over the world. And then there's two other characters, right? You want to talk about some of the two adult characters that are in the show? Absolutely. So Miss Crumble is my absolute favorite character mm-hmm. in the show. Um, so she's the high school biology teacher who is lucky enough to not be turned um, either into goop or a full-on zombie after the bombs fell somehow, but she is going a little nuts. And so it's, you know, watching her kind of transformation and trying to hang on to her identity is amazing. Then the second one is Michael Burr, who's the high school principal, and he seems like he really wants the students to do well, but, you know, behind the scenes, maybe he's a little bit nuts. As, as everyone seems to be in one way or another in the show. He has a running concern about uh, peanut allergies. It's kind of a, a plot point that I'm like, oh, okay, was this going to be a thing? And then eventually it was, and at the very end. But yep. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he, he definitely, uh, Matthew Broderick in this, he is uh, the principal. He is really leaning into his uh, all the goodwill that you may have gotten from Ferris Bueller. And it's just so funny now that it's an obvious joke, but now he is the principal trying to deal with students that are causing mischief as opposed to the other way around. I, li- I like that. That was a fun little thing to play off of. Totally. And one of the things I loved about that actually was that to me, that was one of the funniest parts of the show. And for my 16 year old, it com- went completely over her head. <laughs> she did not get any of those Ferris. She's seen it, but like it just didn't, it wasn't a part of her consciousness. So she didn't get any of the Ferris Bueller references, which I think takes a lot away from the, the quality of the show, which again, is a little bit of hell. The mark was missed. It definitely seems like one of those shows where it's trying to reach uh, an audience of people who were into the 80s and now are wanting that nostalgia but it's it's written in the in the language of a show that you would only show to someone who was maybe born in the 2000s uh so it's a very weird kind of mix they're trying to get there yep exactly so the overall plot of the show right uh sam and josh get set up by the principal because josh is having trouble fitting in so she helps the students essentially kind of escort them around uh get them connected try to make sure that they get on the right foot uh when they join the school um but it turns out they hit hit it off romantically it's kind of a usual story you would get with a rom-com and a high school rom-com. But then, of course, it's interrupted about halfway through with some nuclear detonations that destroy the world and ruin, ruin homecoming. Josh hints that it was a tweet that in, that started the war. There's little quotes here and there from like uh, little dictators with big egos. Well, they can launch a nuke with a tweet. And he says at one point that adults blew up the world, not us. Um, let's get into before we get into the rest of the plot stuff. I want to talk a little bit, I always like to talk about the imagery that we get in the the content that we're talking about of the bombs themselves. Uh, what did you think about kind of the, first of all, the, the scenes that we do get, which are all flashbacks, because um, we start the show after, I don't know how long, couple weeks maybe after it happened. And then we then get into uh, lots of flashbacks of scene when it does occur. I think usually the bomb went off like in the middle of, of night during homecoming football game or something like that yeah so i do think that they did a good job showing off the explosions the the mushroom clouds the shock waves i mean i think that that they didn't really tone that down right it was destructive it 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 showed the the power um of the weapons it was more in the sort of aftermath that they didn't do a great job showing what would happen but i do think the, the sort of scale and overwhelmingness of the bomb itself uh they did a pretty good job with yeah they, they showed a couple of the things they showed off they showed heat uh, they showed shockwaves, they showed, they hinted at radiation issues, but the kind of f- interesting spin here, and I'm not sure if this is what they meant, they were going for beyond the bomb uh, here, but the interesting spin that they added beyond the traditional nukes and what they do is these can um, t- turn people and adults. So I guess there's some, at some point there's an age cutoff. I'm not sure if it's 19 or 20 or something, but adults either become goo, so they disappear, 
or they become essentially mindless zombies repeating and doing the last activity they were doing uh, before the bomb went off. But we also get our classic radiation-induced large monsters, like large, I think it was a large pug uh, okay. dog at one point, some large rats, some large crows with three or four different uh, sets of eyes. So we get that, because we can't have a nuke movie without those things, apparently. Well, and I also think that what they did with the adults was brilliant, right? Mm. So, I mean, essentially, the adults are walking around literally saying the last stupid thing that they were thinking, but they're also super dangerous to the youth that have survived, right? Mm. So, like, if you're an adult, they're, like, walking around talking about how they need to, like, text their babysitter, or, oh, I, I should have gotten the extra smoothie at the gym, or, like, <laughs> just really inane, stupid stuff. But at the same time, they have the power to basically like wipe out all of these kids to me that is such a great representation of where we are in the u.s right now well at this particular moment really because of covid but but just sort of generally with our, our system where you have all these adults who sort of are clueless but with because of that cluelessness they are bringing about more of this existential crisis for the next generation. This is something that it's become more of a, a thing since we, we watched the show, but like, you know, you see the protests about the, uh, the stay-at-home orders and people talking about wanting to get a haircut. That is something you would see one of the zombies say in this. Right before they tried to attack you, they would say, ah, I need to get a haircut. I need to get my yep. haircut. Exactly. Fascinating. And the one thing they don't really get into too much in the show is any sort of lingering radiation or fallout from the bombs. At some points, it looks like the an entire area, a couple of square blocks are like destroyed because of the bomb. Other times, I mean, everything seems to be roughly fine, which like, I guess could be okay because you have to have locations to film and you, you maybe you can't have your teen stars uh, with their hair falling out and their teeth uh, falling out and everything because of radiation. But it's a balance, I think, that they didn't really do all that well if they were trying to go for the other stuff but it was it was fine for the purposes of i guess the other areas where they may want to focus on yeah i mean i think it would have been really hard for them to have the teens because you know the, the point of the story is to show how the kids are dealing with this world where they're all of a sudden in charge because they're mm -hmm. the only ones there it's really hard to both tell that story and have them all be super sick um, at the same time, again, you know, from a from an advocacy standpoint, it would be helpful for people to understand that the aftermath of nukes is it's not just who's impacted at that specific moment, but the sort of long term implications for how you deal with with everyone who survives and, and and what survival actually means for their health right if you want to watch uh teenagers dealing with a uh, nuclear war you can watch threads if you really want to get into yeah. when it really want to get into that i guess this is a i was one of the things i was trying to figure out is does the nuclear war and weapons in this particular show make the world seem a little less dangerous and kind of silly or does it show that Hey, these things are possible. But anyways, it's it's fascinating. It's also fascinating from a, a plot perspective that they combine the nukes into this interesting nuclear radiological concern, but also a biological concern. Not too many movies I've seen that have done that, but uh, they, they add that extra element there, that the weapons, whether they were Russian or Chinese or something, uh, were somehow also added. They were they were uh, spiced. They were salted, I guess, uh, with to make it a little more dangerous with radiological and biological damages. Fascinating. It's just yeah. a little twist there. Totally. And I loved how, you know, part of it was that the kids just didn't really know what to expect and what would be in the, you know, in a weapon like this. Like all of it is a surprise, right? right. And I think that that's really representative of where we are now, that there's this sort of like amorphous fear of something, but we don't know exactly what, when, how, what it would look like. And so you've got these, you know, this whole generation that's kind of growing up thinking like, um, the, are we on the precipice of the end of the world, but we don't know how it's going to hit us. So to me, that sort of all these things wrapped up together and they said points talked about climate change, things mm -hmm. like that made a lot of sense, right? Because it, it is this sort of threat 
and the fact that adults were a part of that threat after the fact and become these these you know zombies essentially that's all really relevant as well so i i was actually Hmm. excited to see a show that helps youth identify like helps teens identify that that nukes and you know all these other things are existential threats that we need to do something about and specifically unfortunately they need to do something about. (laughs) yeah i was gonna say at the very end of the show you you get a couple of adults that now try to use the weapons again for their next round of ulterior motives but for most of the time it's just well what are the kids going to have to deal with this because the adults are either zombies which you could argue maybe they were before if they weren't doing anything about the nuclear concerns or they're goo which is what you may end up being uh, probably more vaporized goo at some point uh, so I think that is an interesting piece that they, they put into this. But of course, that's not the only thing that the show deals with. Whatever the nukes happen to be, we get the, sh- the plot of the show, which is a few months later, uh, Glendale, which is about 10 minutes from where I grew up on the freeway, you know, with no traffic or anything. So it was fun to see locations and stuff uh, and what it would look like if it was bombed out. The mall was definitely a piece of my late 90s, early 2000s uh, childhood. So that was pretty cool to see. So we get the different groups that are now ruling over the kingdoms of Glendale, uh, which was fun. They're different social uh clicks so we get the jocks they're pretty much the, the the muscle the ones in charge we get the cheer masons uh we've got the disciples of kardashia which i guess are like the fashion kardashia uh family followers we have the 4-h club which the 4-h club i've always seen references to that wasn't actually on my high school i don't know if the, your high school had a 4-h like farming club it's always something that's referenced but i never see, i've really seen it but farming's big in in our area like the chino area which is next to glendale ish has a lot of farms and things so maybe maybe it's there. I just didn't see it. Uh, we've got the STEM punks, the science guys. Uh, we've got the Game Over uh, gaming crew, and then my personal favorite, the golf team, and their ever dwindling membership. Because every couple episodes, one of the golf team members dies, and they have to find a way to replace them, but they don't. So yeah, it's kind of interesting. Um, whenever the, the our main characters aren't being harassed by one of these groups or the ghoulies, the kind of zombie people, uh, we get this other character, what the mysterious Baron Triumph who's like a gas mask wearing, motorcycle driving cannibal that everybody is concerned with. But yeah, that's kind of the the premise of the the show. You know, you can talk all kinds of detail about this, but the big thing is that Wesley meets up with Angelica, the young girl, and then Wesley, the former jock who's now a samurai, and they kind of go and hole up in a mall, kind of like the movie Dawn of the Dead, uh, which is another kind of fascinating uh, reference for this. Um, Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the other parts of the plots before we get into the kind of the big finale here with the radiation? bits sure so as things move forward you know you have josh feuding with the jocks because they've held sam who's girlfriend prisoner Mm -hmm. got wesley who's a former lover of the head jock so the head jock is the sort of bad dude who rules over everybody i think you said with a with a baseball fist baseball glove (laughs) clad fist and so wesley's struggling with his love for turbo who turns out to be a bad guy it seems and a desire to become a better person and then turbo wants to be in that world angelica again the 10 year old who's wise beyond her years seeks friendship and a place for herself and and she tries to bring miss crumble and my favorite character mm-hmm. who's a teacher back from being a semi-zombie human hybrid so miss crumble like doesn't get fully zombified and there's like a, a flicker of herself inside and so angelica is trying to bring her back because angelica's mom is like mia on a submarine so somewhere mm-hmm. which i thought was also kind of interesting take on it her mom is like more dedicated to her career than she is to angelica and here she is to spend for herself and then it turns out that baron triumph this super bad dude on a motorcycle who's scaring everybody all around town is actually principal burr 
again, from Ferris Bueller fame, <laughs> uh, Matthew Broderick, uh, who survived in his school's fallout shelter and now wants to either eat bad children or impose strict discipline on them to rule the new world. It's very interesting uh, combination of, of modes of punishment for, for bad kids. And yeah, that's, that is our big reveal moment. It was, it was fun. I mean, I, I, I don't know if there was a certain point where I'm like, it's probably the principal because why would you have Matthew Broderick in this show and only for a few episodes? But it was still fun for him to play that character. He was, he was really good yeah. in it. He's, uh, he he's fun. In it. He was great in it. And I think, I think, you know, reviving that terrible principal character and, and just like really turning him into a bad dude who's sort of semi-zombified and, mm-hmm. and wants to, wants to eat the kids. I mean, what a, what an awesome way for Ferris Bueller, you know, for that whole thing to come full circle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and it, I also thought it was funny that he had a fallout shelter in the school but he was really the only one that got to use it. Uh, and none, none of the students got to, none of the other faculty. It was pretty much like, yeah, this is going to be mine. Yep. Yep. That seems right. <laughs> There's a fun subplot here that I think could be kind of go, worth going into. There's a, At some point, we learn that Sam is being held by the jocks and she's being tasked with like um, kind of an all-purpose, knowing science person. Uh, she helps grow food for everybody and she discovers that you can use sunflowers to clean up the radiation in the soil so we do get a reference there's some sort of there's radiation in the soil it's not enough to make people sick it seems but it's enough to stop plants from growing i guess the plants if you eat them then you would get sick uh so has she has this thing where she takes uh sunflowers to soak up the radiation from the soil and i was like oh that's that's really interesting is that a a real a real thing um because it looks like it's it could be um i think it's something that you mentioned your favorite character uh mrs crumble uh, she she teaches the kids this in school which i think was really cool uh it turns out this is true uh although it would take upwards of three years for it to work so i'm not a scientist or a botanist but according to the research that i saw uh sunflowers are what they call i think they mentioned in the show hyper accumulators and these are plants that could absorb concentrations of like toxic chemicals, metals, other things uh, that are in the soil. They can absorb that in their tissues and draw it out from the soil itself. Some scientists have said that if you will plant uh, sunflower seeds in places where there's lots of this kind of toxic material, uh, you can absorb it over the course of three years. There's some examples of in Fukushima uh, after 2011, the nuclear uh, accident there. One of the uh, a chief monk at a Buddhist temple nearby started planting a bunch of sunflower seeds in order to be able to accomplish this task here. Let's see here. Uh, according to an article on the environmental website Inhabitant, at least 8 million sunflowers and 200,000 other plants were distributed by this Buddhist temple. So that's a pretty cool effort here, but not just from the science side. There's also a really cool connection between sunflower seeds and international um, nuclear disarmament movements. It's kind of become a part of uh, the symbology of that effort. Um, would you like to talk a little bit about this? Because you may have worked with one of these organizations previously. Yeah, absolutely. Sunflowers are seen as this international symbol for nuclear disarmament, sort of going way back um, to early days of, of the nuclear freeze fight. So here, this is a story that was written by an activist group called Waging Peace. Since now sunflowers carry new meaning, they've become the symbol of a world free of nuclear weapons. This came about after an extraordinary celebration in Ukraine, achieving the status of a nuclear-free state. So on June 1st, 1996, Ukraine transferred to Russia for dismantlement, the last of the 1900 nuclear warheads it had inherited from the former Soviet Union. Celebrating the occasion, a few days later, the defense ministers of Ukraine, Russia, and the U.S. met at a former nuclear missile base in Ukraine that once housed 80 SS-19 missiles aimed at the U.S. The three defense 
defense ministers planted sunflowers and scattered sunflower seeds, and the Ukrainian president said, with the completion of our task, Ukraine has demonstrated its support of a nuclear weapons-free world. And he called on other nations to follow in Ukraine's path and to do everything to wipe nuclear weapons from the face of the earth as soon as possible. And U.S. Secretary of Defense William Perry said sunflowers instead of missiles in the soil would ensure peace for future generations. So that's really interesting uh, that, that there is that connection there. I'm not sure if the show was trying to draw on that, but it is a cool kind of bit of history there. I think that they were really just mostly drawing on the science side, but it's a fascinating thing if people wanted to kind of delve into that. It's a, it's really great. It's the same thing too. If people look at the the symbol that you often associate with peace, that um, kind of an upside down fork that kind of spread out there, uh, that is a, which the what original origins for this was in the kind of the the civil uh, disarmament movement. It was was it CND the uh, campaign for nuclear disarmament. It was spelling out C and and D with the types of things you would do with flags on a ship when you're trying to signal to other ships. Uh, so it's an interesting connection of people who maybe like not know that the peace symbol has its roots in nuclear anti nuclear movements. Uh, the same kind of stuff that you work on on a day to day basis. So what uh, what do you think should be the next uh, symbols here that we should be learning about and seeing in television for the next 30 or 40 years? Got, you got anything on, on as cool as sunflowers or the peace you symbol? Know, I don't Can you beat sunflowers? I mean, I think sunflowers are so great because beyond everything that we've already said, sunflowers follow the sun. They literally seek out the source of light hmm. and and aim themselves toward absorbing that and transferring it into something good, right? So like that is such a great symbol for everything that we're trying to do as change makers in, mm. in addressing nuclear issues, but also just any problem that we have with society. So sunflowers are right on. I think maybe rainbows is, are the next thing, right? So that's sort of, for me, it's like you put a sunflower with a rainbow and that's, <laughs> that's the perfect day. That's a fun thing to find at the end of a rainbow. A nice sunflower <laughs> patch. My yeah. sister had uh, sunflowers growing outside of her window for a long time and she had a high window. So she waited, I think it was about a year or two before they were finally tall enough to, to get up there. I never even knew that those would be good things in case we had radiation in the backyard. We can also clean that up. So that's great. Yeah. So season one of the show... There's lots of little episodes here and there. There's lots of new characters that we meet. We, the different groups will fight against each other. There's all kinds of stuff. But the big ending point is that Baron Triumph, he gets uh, revealed. He gets put in prison. He comes back out. He then takes over the jocks and through his pure survival of the, the strongest kind of mentality, he gets back to being principal. He decides what he wants to do is take one of the undetonated nuclear missiles that landed in Glendale, which is for some reason is interesting because it looks basically like a missile as you would before you launched it, somehow it launched itself and then like fell down and didn't explode. It, we, we, we have other episodes of our podcast where we talk about the fact that you send a missile up, it goes into space. The only thing that really lands on you as a uh, unsuspecting citizen is something that looks like a large ice cream cone. The warhead itself, not the full missile, but okay. These are special missiles, right? These are somewhat of advanced kind of things. Yeah, but they, they have the missile, they have it propped up so that it gets, and I guess refueled so that it could fire again. But anyways, they're trying to get that back. Uh, and it's up to Angelica and Mrs. Crumble to deal with the bomb. So it looks like Angelica has, has used her science skills to to find a way to disarm the bomb. It looks like the bomb is some has both Russian and Chinese language characters on it. Anyways, I, I thought that was an interesting little subplot there. Baron is, he's defeated uh, because they draw on the power of the ghoulies and kind of bring them in to fight him. The, the nut allergy comes back because what is it? Uh, is it Josh's samurai sword has dipped in peanut butter and therefore the, the nut allergy gets to, to Baron Triumph because he gets cut on it. And the key thing at the end is there's this fun twist where you want to reveal the twist, I guess, for the would have set up season two. 
Yes, exactly. So Sam Dean, the you know supposedly angelic girlfriend that Josh has spent his his entire season trying to save, mm-hmm. turns out that instead of returning to romantic bliss with Josh, she's she's going to now rule Glendale, and there's a, an evil glint in her eye. So so we find out that maybe she isn't the the sweet girl we all hoped and dreamed she would be. Oh no, she'll she'll find a way to use sunflowers against us. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Anything else that I'm missing in terms of the different subplots? I guess uh, Mrs. Crumble. Uh, she ends up saving the day because I guess she can deals with the bomb. I think she like tries to, I forget the exact thing that she does, but she basically is able to divert the bomb or to shut off the bomb and she explodes, but then she comes back. So I guess she has yeah. that ability to come back. I love that the adult who saves the day in this show, who doesn't save the day herself, really, but she saves the day by one, empowering a kid, right? So she gets Angelica to feel like she's... Mm-hmm. She can do it, and she makes her brave enough to to go out. And it's really Angelica that's saving the day. Um, and then Miss Crumble sacrifices herself. Like, what a great allegory for where we find ourselves today. It's you know time to kind of step aside and let the kids do the business of fixing the world that we've destroyed, and give them the support and the help that they need to do that. But recognize that like we've done a pretty bad job managing. Uh, so that's the show. Uh, there are some interesting kind of new uh, plot discussion questions that I'd really love to get your takes on for some of these. Uh, so the first question is, if you were a teenager, or you can have this experience of actually watching this with a teenager, um, and you're watching Daybreak without any sort of other nuclear background. So maybe this is not perfect for your kid, because I'm sure you would have they would have gotten the, the nuke background spill yet. Uh, but if they didn't have that, what do you think that they might draw and take away from nuclear weapons, nuclear danger, from just, you know, watching this? Like, what does it say about nuclear war? Yeah, so I think a couple things that, that are really important. One is the total collapse of society. That's the thing they got right, you know? I mean, even if the radiation part is not correct and and you know the the distance from from the detonation site all that kind of stuff those details are are not right societal collapse the fact that right now we have no hospitals we have no you know emergency services there's no electricity i guess there is electricity somehow but somehow. there are these there are these things that that we need on a daily basis that we just don't have access to information and, and internet and things like that so i feel like that's one really critical piece that tells teenagers the story of like this is this is what happens in these kinds of destruct like this is a thing that's part of what nuclear war would look like hmm. um so that's one side of it right and that's i think that's super helpful i think on the other side of it though you end up with with kids kind of in charge in a sort of lord of the flies for the 21st century way that is hard but also they have this sort of weird level of freedom and i think you know it's it's that watching them sort of decide is this level of freedom worth not having the security of all those other things and, and i think that that's a, there is an interesting flow to that right sometimes it seems worth it and sometimes it doesn't and i think that's one of the reasons why having angelica on the show is so great because she's 10 and so she's so much more susceptible to those feelings of despair and stress and, and fear than some of the older kids are and so i think it brings you sort of grounds you back and like oh no you know actually all the parents are gone <laughs> Yeah. Like all of the, all of the people who would be there to keep them safe are gone, and and that's gonna have a, a negative impact on them. Yeah, Wesley and Angelica were my two favorite characters. I think they played uh, different aspects of what you want to cover in this scenario really well. Kind of when you pair them together, uh, so it was fun to kind of see their their, their different plot lines. Uh, be drawn out here if you have the nuclear plot here and one of the second questions i had here is do you think that the show could have worked without the nuclear plot because at least the 
the comic book that it was originally based off of, I was able to find a, a copy of that online, and it's really just a zombie story. It's, the, it's actually fascinating because the comic book is written, the whole thing is written in um, first-person view. So it's you as the reader, as the person in this scenario, you never even speak. You just kind of kind of run around with some other characters, and it's there's no nukes, there's no nothing. But when you introduce that nuclear plot to it, you do kind of get to a different kind of story. Of course, then you throw in all the fun Ferris Bueller's and Days Off and 80s references and high school stuff into it. You really do get a different show here that it wouldn't have existed if you didn't have the nuclear element here. What do you think the show would have been like if it didn't have that? Well, I mean, I think one of the things that the nuke plot brings to it is uh, the speed of destruction, right? So if you if mm. you have just like a zombie, you know, so take The Walking Dead, for example. It takes a really long time in The Walking Dead before the buildings are crumbling and all of the food is, is gone from the various places where they're sneaking in to find things and they have to sort of turn the leaf over to how do we create a new society? Years, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas in this show, you go from basically like regular society, destroyed society, Lord of the Fly society in a matter of weeks. And I think the only thing that allows that to happen is the fact that, that the, the nuke has, or the nukes have destroyed not just the, the systems, right? It's not just like the fact that there aren't adults around anymore, but also all the infrastructure, all the information, all of the crops, like everything has sort of been taken out, which feels really important to the storyline, right? It would just be yeah. much slower burn if, if that hadn't been the case. Yeah, it's uh, it's that's a really good point because you talked about the total collapse of, of civilization in the, in the show and how well that portrays reality uh, post nuclear war. It's different even than the zombie stuff because in the zombie you have the breakdown of people. And that causes problems. But in, in a post-nuclear war world, you have to concern yourself with uh, other people who may be trying to, uh, the war may be still be ongoing. You have that then that conflict of uh, people fighting over resources and what might be available. But then you also have simply the environment itself now is something that will try to kill you, whether it's yep. destroyed ozone uh, protection. So everything, you'll start losing your eyes because of the fact that UV rays will be higher. Everything will be colder. Crops won't grow. There's going to be not, no, no matter how many sunflowers you have, it won't grow if the the sun is blocked out by nuclear winter you know the different models that people have talked about here so like literally the environment itself is it's trying to get you which you don't normally get in a traditional you know zombie movie you only get concerned if someone bites you here it's yeah that would probably happen too but it's because someone will try to eat you because there's no food left you know there's all kinds yeah. of stuff i would say that it does add a lot there uh that's a little bit different than we normally would get yeah for sure well and i think whenever you have a show where kids are the stars mm -hmm. they're, they're growing right i mean i think you have to remember that from year to year, they're they're growing, right? So anything that takes more than a year is a long time in the life of a kid. And so you have to kind of speed things up. And, mm. and unfortunately, nukes speed up the destruction, right? So having that as the sort of critical piece of, of what's causing this breakdown means that you, you've got kids that are sort of right at the beginning of, of the situation, and then they're having to deal with it as opposed to sort of growing up in this situation and then dealing with it. So again, yeah, I think I think that speeding up of, of the destruction is a really critical piece that people need to understand about nukes and the show does a good job of showing it does also try to show as well uh what could potentially cause this world to happen you know there's lots of there's a few in the first episode or two references to people tweeting a uh, nuclear war uh or the fact that it's human it's adults that cause the problem and not the kids but i think one of the things that this show does well is it doesn't try too much to explain what happened because it's not so much every time in some movies it's really it's really important uh, even in threads it's a little bit of an importance a sense of it kind of creates a, a realistic scenario that could lead to a conflict but 
to most of the average people, particularly students and uh, younger people, doesn't really matter why. It just matters that it did and it matters yeah. that it's affecting them. And I, I'm glad the show didn't try to lean too heavily into that. It, it makes reference. Oh, right. there's Chinese and Russian language on the bomb, but that's more of a mystery of what it is. Maybe they would explain it in a season two or a season three. But it's also not that important. It's just that yeah. it happened. Yeah, I like that it doesn't hit you over the head with with some like geopolitical analysis mm-hmm. because you know teenagers growing up in Glendale are not going to have that. But I think it also does a great job of just sort of showcasing some of the geopolitical madness that's inherent in growing up right now, mm-hmm. right? So so some of those little examples, right? Like the the launching a nuke by tweet that is such a given to kids at this point. Like that's that's kind of terrifying, right? And like that in and of itself is such an interesting statement about where we are in the grand scheme of history right now um, that I thought that that was really fascinating. And I thought the other thing that was great was how they they sort of articulate a lot of that stuff in a really snarky kind of cynical way, hmm. um, which again is is so, you know, dead on when it comes to teenagers today who who have been growing up in this world where, you know, adults clearly haven't cared enough to do something about climate change. Adults, you know, now they're sort of, these kids are starting to realize that nukes are an issue. Like they are cynical because they feel like they've been handed a load of crap. It's an interesting way that this show has done a great job just sort of being snarky about it and kind of calling it as it is and not dwelling too much on, on hurt feelings about it. It's not a nuke show, you know, in a sense, it's not, right. it's not like Jericho or some of these other kind of teenage, a show that where most of the principal characters are teenagers. Uh, that involves in, around a nuclear conflict uh, that has more about that. This is a, a setup point. There's some really interesting themes that come out of it, but it's really more about the dynamics of the characters and, and, and all of that, which I think is great. Uh, but it leads me to our, our what I call the parking lot movie discussion. So it's when my friends and I, when we used to be able to go to the movies uh, back in the day, right? The movie theaters. Oh, that uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, such a long time ago, uh, before the bombs. Um, and we would discuss the movie in the parking lot afterwards before we went our separate ways. Uh, so I wanted to ask you, you know, what did you think about the kind of semi-anthology format of the show? Uh, very much, I, I like that particular piece to it. Do you think yeah. that that, now that we've kind of covered the full plot here, were there certain parts of it that you really enjoyed? Was there maybe a, a storyline you didn't love as much? Or I'd love to kind of get your thoughts on, on that. Because is this really a unique thing for uh, a show? I really love that format. I mean, I think it gave you a sense of being able to understand the different characters characters in just really unique ways. I thought bringing in, for example, the the um, samurai episode was such a departure. I was definitely not expecting it. And I think it, it showed me something about that character that I don't think we would have been able to see. Wesley ends up being this really very deep character, right? Mm-hmm. There's, there's a lot of, there are a lot of layers to the onion and, and you wouldn't have seen that if it had stayed in the same format it had been in. So I thought that that was a really great way of going about it. And I, and I also thought that the fact that there was a through line of the of the tone you know the dark comedy and the sort of series of pop culture references to things from you know the 80s but also more recently there there were a lot of pop culture references outside of the the Ferris Bueller ones that was a through line and so I thought that if they did a really good job of having like different types you know different formats while also maintaining some of that consistency so you weren't like totally thrown off mm-hmm. episode to episode. One of the things I was thinking about a lot when I would watch the show was what was a reference what wasn't a reference because a lot of the stuff went over my head uh but it was fun because you got to understand for these characters uh when they're that old you know yeah history and other things may have um informed their thought process but a lot of it was not a lot of it's things they learned from their friends or from popular culture 
is kind of inform- informing the decisions that they make. So it made me think about, you know, for me, what was my favorite, uh, you know, teenage uh, movie or comedy or TV show or uh, things like that. I would love to know what yours was. Mine was uh, a tie between, I was a big fan of The Wonder Years growing up. About a, a, an era way before I was born, but not too, you know, fairly close in terms of when it was coming out. Uh, and then the movie Can Hardly Wait, which is completely non-nuclear or anything. Um, but those co- two things, I wish there was a few more references to those stuff in Daybreak. But th- that kind of informed me growing up a lot in terms of how I would think about things. So if they were to make this show a couple years ago, I'm sure those things would have been more at the top of it. But any mm-hmm. anything, any favorites for you? You'd love to, to talk about or recommend to people? Yeah. I mean, my two favorites growing up were Breakfast Club and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Great. Right? So I was lucky because... One, one, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, obviously, very centrally played up in this show. But two, I think the sort of central message of The Breakfast Club around, like, you have these categories of people, but really all those categories are meaningless and we should come together, kumbaya, and so forth, is very central, again, to this show, right? The whole idea that they have all these different groups at the beginning that, that end up having to sort of unite in a coalition to solve the problems at the end is a restating of the of the Breakfast Club theme. Hmm. I feel like the song may have, may have been there at some point as well. <laughs> And then I think just coming back to Ferris Bueller, I mean, I think one of the things that the reason that I love that movie so much is that I think it it's such a great um, piece of evidence in the in the idea that you don't have to be good at school or you don't have to, you know, tied to what the opinions of authorities are in order to be smart and effective. And that like to me, that's the whole the whole story of Ferris Bueller is somebody who's not going to live by the rules, but is still going is still has a good heart, still is going to do good stuff and is going to do interesting things and probably do things that are way more interesting than most people are going to do. And at the end of the day, Ferris Bueller is the guy in his future who created some great solutions to some some really intractable problems in society. So to me, Ferris Bueller is like such a great example of the kind of like kids that I want to raise, you know, knock on wood, if I can make it through the teenage years <laughs> and they can become like great, great people to see that featured so centrally in a movie about what do we do after, after the apocalypse is like, yes, that's exactly the kind of energy you need is, is the energy that says, well, screw what, what the status quo says. Let me figure it out for myself and find a new way. Well, just be on a, the extra lookout in case they decide uh, this when they say, oh, I'm sick today. I don't know. If, <laughs> I, I got a fever. Um, yeah. They may be pretending to be, what is it? Abe, Abe Froman, the uh, sausage yeah, king exactly. of Chicago. <laughs> if the show wasn't canceled, cause I think it was fascinating when, when we, this has been an episode that's been a long time coming. Uh, when we watched it initially, I don't think yeah. it was canceled. And then since we watched it and getting ready for this episode, it was canceled. What would be some plot points, either nuke-wise or not, maybe one of each, uh, that you really wanted to see in season two? Okay, so let me start by saying I'm actually really glad it was canceled, <laughs> um, which is <laughs> sacrilegious, but here's why. I think that very often shows like this, particularly these post-apocalyptic shows, kind of go on for too long, hmm. and then they start getting into all kinds of other plot lines that just divert from the energy and the sort of meaning of, of why they exist in the first place. So I'm, I'm actually glad to have this like one season encapsulated, and we don't have to worry about that happening. Okay, mm-hmm. so, the, so the, that out of the way. If, though, we had a season two, I think a couple of things I would love to learn more about are what happens with Angelica. Uh, again, she's one of my favorite characters. She's she's smart and quirky and super weird, um, but also a kid and and has, you know, carries all of the kind of emotional challenges that come with being a kid in this ridiculous world. Um, so I think that I would love to see that, uh, including, you know, what's going on with her mom. I think that there was a little bit of foreshadowing that maybe her mom was still around in the submarine and, and, and there was something going on there. And Did it seem like a resource submarine or a nuclear submarine? I couldn't tell. 
Right? Mm-hmm. Right? So, like, I think maybe her mom was involved in, in some way in all this stuff that went down. So that that one would definitely be, you know, that's a storyline I'd love to see. And I think that that's where the tie-in is between maybe the Nuke storyline and and the, the rest of it, right? Is like, what is the sort of backstory of, of how this nuclear war started and, you know, the truth that nuclear wars are started by people? Like, I think we tend to think of them as started by countries mm-hmm. and you know countries are run by people and so this idea that it could have been her mom that was responsible for that is a really interesting thread that i think should be pulled at you know let, let's see what does it look like when someone you actually know is responsible for this kind of destruction yeah i would have loved to have seen that plus let's say sam in her new world order she's trying to create that's different than baron triumphs but it's maybe it's got similar themes to it what if she uh goes from glendale to i guess maybe the nearest place would be the probably a couple air force bases but let's say she goes to a missile field somewhere or a stockpile and she gets access to a bunch of nuclear weapons and the question for her is what is she going to do with them is she going to get rid of them is she going to keep her sunflower philosophy of, of changing things uh for the better or will she fall into the temptation of the same one that the adults did and then having angelica and, and going through that same kind of issue with her and her family would have been maybe somewhat of an interesting storyline for the future for sure let's see wrap up of the discussion here uh we always like to rate our stuff uh, that we cover uh from a consistent uh one to five scale with one being the worst and five being terrific uh i like to keep that consistent uh because we can compare it across all the things we talk about but i like to get super critical and tailor the rating system uh, based on the plot that we watched. So I've crunched the numbers here. So for Daybreak, let's rate the show on a one to five scale of the number of uh, sunflower petals uh, when you're trying to make a really difficult decision. You know, picture the girl in that LBJ ad, uh, the Daisy ad, uh, a little girl picking flower petals uh, as a nuclear launch countdown ticks away, and then she has just one, you know, left and it explodes. So let's say in this scenario, you have only one sunflower petal. That's not really great because when you pick that one petal, you're done. But let's say you have five petals. Maybe you count real slow and you can get to your fallout shelter in your local high school. How many would you give the show? How many sunflower petals? So I'm kind of torn on this. Um, so like you said, we started watching this a long time ago um, and kind of preparing for it. And I've watched it again recently to prepare for this conversation a couple months after I watched it the first time. And it doesn't really survive as well. It's mm. a good time around. Um, I think some of the novelty of, you know, the, the pop culture references and the starkiness and things like that doesn't necessarily you know entertain as well the second time around and that's always something i'm looking for in in the show like this is the bingeability and the re-bingeability right mm-hmm. so there's that that being said i think you know they for all the reasons that we just talked about it was interesting and it was creative and they did a good job of showcasing the characters and kind of talking about some of these big social issues uh in the context of this smaller lord of the flies community and so on the balance i would say probably three sunflower petals okay depending on the day you catch me it might go down just to, just as good <laughs> how many would you uh would your daughter the older one give it you would you say i think she probably would have given it like one one and a half she really did 
didn't like it. <laughs> Ooh, okay. I'm uh, I'm in a similar place as you. Um, I give it 2.5. I'm allowed. Sorry, I forgot to mention. You can do halves if you want to. So I, do, I give it 2.5. So that one is maybe that sunflower petal was uh, already chewed off a little bit by a caterpillar or something. <laughs> so I, I give it 2.5. I, it, there were some episodes I really liked, like the one with Riza, and I enjoy the smaller scale aspect of the nuclear story at points. But I'm just not the right target audience. But I'm glad to have seen it because I need to see what people are consuming when I'm trying to make sense of nuclear pop culture. Uh, it was really fun to see Matthew Broderick do what he was doing, to see Wesley and his character do what he was doing. Um, I do also thought that the comic book was interesting, too. It's completely different. It's really, it's you would not understand if you watch those two things at the same time. It's completely different. It was fascinating because the guy who made that, Brian Ralph, he said he was inspired by Cormac McCarthy's The Road, which is one of my absolute favorite books. Before my childhood was born, uh, I listened to it again. I try to do it at least once a year. I listen to that because it it's not a very happy book at all. It's very depressing about, uh, we don't know what environmental or nuclear or something happened, but the world is all burnt up and it's a man and his son uh, trying to travel, go south to, to get to the ocean where maybe there'll be life and it might be a little bit warmer. But it's one of these great bits of post-apocalyptic um, fiction that I really enjoy. And then I think the Netflix uh, people who did the show were right to add uh, some of the more fun elements into the show so that was fascinating to kind of see all of that it's still maybe i'm just not the right audience for it but there were aspects that i enjoyed enough so 2.5 is pretty good i've had stuff that we've covered on this podcast before where it's a one and i never want to touch it again or think about it again this is not one of those i'm happy to talk to people about it in the future but if there are things we would recommend to people check out instead of this uh, or maybe in addition to this this would be things whether they are nuclear or related to daybreak or just something maybe in the genre uh, that you might like uh, i have three things but i'll let you go first uh, you're the guest what would, what would you recommend to sure. people to check out okay the first one is the hundred i don't know you probably covered the hundred before but if you know it's on my list though all right. Well, you should cover the hundred. So, so, okay. So this is a show where the kids are actually kicking ass, right? Like they are Lord of the flies their way through this post-apocalyptic hellscape and they are not uh, Ferris Bueller-ing it. Like they are, <laughs> they're serious. They're war painting themselves and they've definitely not a comedy. If you're looking for something with youth kicking ass, that's your go-to. Okay, so that's the first one. My second is going to sound kind of crazy, and it's not nukes related, but it's Phineas and Ferb. Hmm. So this is, if you're not familiar with Phineas and Ferb, it's a cartoon. Um, and uh, it's essentially, it's, it's these two kids who are just like hyper geniuses and are inventing all kinds of like crazy, innovative ways to have fun or solve problems, um, wise beyond their years, um, but always getting away with it, and, and the adults are none the wiser, and it's just a great way to be inspired about the, like, potential and energy of kids hmm. that I feel like we're not, we don't put enough uh, value in, so two, those are two about, you know, youth who are, who are trying to save the world, um, and then, you know, my third one, things you should check out if you did or even didn't enjoy the show, the Beyond the Bomb website. I have to put the plug in. Oh, yeah. Uh, come, come and join us, uh, and uh, we'll give you some some actions that you can take, and you can become the hero of, of the nuclear story. And before I get into my other stuff, I, w I would second that, because it really does allow people a very good, uh, easy, I mean, not easy, but easy relative to being able to destroy all the world's nuclear bombs. It's a good way for people to be able to themselves have agency, and at least uh, feel better about uh, the world and, and the, their connection to nu nuclear weapons. Because it only will, at any point in history, it's only seen progress being made on this stuff when people and citizens talk 
and say that they want this to be something and then vote that way or can convince the people that are already there. My three things are uh, a mix of stuff. Uh, War Games is something I always recommend it because simply Matthew Broderick's in it. Uh, so it's fun there. We covered that one on the podcast. It was I wish I could go back. I think it was the second or third episode we did, and I didn't know what I was doing back then um, with the podcast. But now I would love to go back and talk about it some more. I recommend this movie called The Night of the Comet from 1984. Have you ever heard of this one? Have it. This was a movie that I saw when I was a kid on TV. I probably should not have seen it because it's a little <laughs> bit closer to an R than a PG-13. Um, but I forgot what the title of this movie was for 15 years and finally Googled just the right combination of words and figured it out. But it's a movie where there's a comet that uh, either turns people into dust or zombies. You sound a little familiar. And it's where there were a few teenagers that were saved because they were making out in a movie theater projection booth. That was surrounded by lead, and apparently that was what protected them. They need to navigate this new crazy world, find their friends, find a cure. It's not the most amazing movie uh, when I watched it recently, but it's fun. It's a lot of fun, uh, and it's partially as well was the inspiration for the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie, which then became the show, which is very popular. Recommend people check that out as well. And then finally, uh, an article that was written by Elizabeth King in the uh, publication called The Cut. Uh, It's from 2017 in June called How Growing Up with the Threat of Nuclear War Shapes Kids' Psyches. And she cites a number of studies of kids who lived up uh, during the Cold War and how the ever-present threat of nuclear war impacted their lives and development. Uh, so it's particularly interesting for, for all of this, for the kids in Daybreak who grew up with the concern and then had to grow up with the even further with the actual issue itself. Thanks very much for, for coming on the podcast here. Where can people find, other than the website Beyond the Bomb, uh, where can people find some more of your great insights on all this stuff? absolutely so yeah check us out beyondthebomb.org or on twitter at beyondthebomb and i am on twitter at cecily tw that's c-e-c-i-l-i-t-w you can check out all kinds of great analysis that we have on our blog including some good analysis of other pop culture instances or just us ranting about (laughs) the woes of the world and how we're going to fix them great any uh big t- uh, 2020 goals other than uh come out of quarantine and, and save the yeah. world like we need other, any other big project people should be looking out for maybe a particular effort that may be now inspired to help out on yeah so uh in june we have a online um lobby visit set up so you can lobby your representatives uh we have a piece of legislation in congress on no first use we talked about that at the top of the show uh no first use is the, our primary policy goal so you can um, lobby your representatives and get them to co-sponsor that legislation so that's in june that we're doing an at-home lobby we know everybody is is again stuck in their little hobbit hole so that is your opportunity to kind of stretch your activist legs um, <laughs> without necessarily leaving the house and then, uh, yeah, if you go to our website and sign up, you'll get updates. Uh, we send out a monthly action alert that has updates on what we're doing, but also on what other um, movement partners are doing. Uh, and right now we have this super fun uh, Twitter feed. Fun is maybe not the right word. It's called Bullshit Watch. And we are <laughs> keeping track of all of the bullshit that is being um, blasted into the policy sphere in the midst of COVID, um, using COVID as a cover to pass bad policy, whether it's nuke related or not. So if you know of any bullshit, then send it our way. Hashtag bullshit watch. That's terrific. Um, I will. I promise not to use it to just uh, complain about movies that I see with nuke imagery <laughs> and things in them. Uh, I'll, I'll keep it to the important stuff. So thanks so very much again for coming on the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
Thanks for listening to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or you want to tell us what we got wrong, uh, nuke-wise, or maybe we weren't accurately representing what it's like to be a teenager, uh, a couple ways you can contact the show. I'm on Twitter for the show at Nuclear Podcast. I have a Gmail account that people send a lot of uh, great comments to, and I love uh, responding to people on that, supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. And we're also on Facebook and some of the other usual places you can find uh, shows and things like this. Until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer. And Cecily Thompson-Williams. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we're bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one.